Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. And today we'll be reading from John chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 17. If you're curious, I'm using the New American Standard Version. We are in our 20th week in the Gospel of John. And yes, we are only beginning John chapter 5 now. So we've got a little while to go. Today we're in John chapter 5, and we're reading verses 1 through 17. And I want you to see Jesus here. He encounters a man that is completely and totally hopeless, and he sees the opportunity to care for him. Notice verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the, by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos or patios or balconies, that kind of word means there. And these, and these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Verse 5. A man was there who had been there ill 38 years. Then Jesus saw him lying there. And knew that he had been there a long time in that condition. He said to this man, do you wish to get well? Verse 7. The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While, but while I'm coming, another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, well, now get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well. He picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet, as if this man really cares. <laughs> he was just healed. Verse 11, But he answered and said, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said this to you? Pick up your pallet and walk. But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing all the things on the Sabbath. But he answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Amen. Today I want you to open your eyes to see the world as God sees the world. Today I want you to open your eyes to see the world as God sees the world. Because if you just look up and you see people for who they really are and the situation they're really in, you would see opportunities to care all around you. On a personal note, as most of you know, this is a difficult time of the year for my family and I. Uh, if you do not know our story, I'll be quick on it, but on September 20th, this past two weeks ago, today, uh, September 20th was the fifth anniversary of my two-year-old son's passing, and September 30th is this, his seventh birthday. So you can imagine, one of the reasons why I wasn't here last week is just because this right in the middle of those ten days every year. And so you can imagine from September 20th to September 30th, my whole family is kind of in one of these things. And then August 1st hits and we kind of bounce back, right? But if you've ever, if you're a parent 
And if you've ever lost a child, then I would imagine you know that that is the deepest of all losses. But the reason we stand today is twofold, is number one, because of God's faithfulness, but also because of the faithfulness of other people to see the opportunity to care for people that are walking through the midst of hopelessness. Two weeks ago, on September 20th of this, so two weeks ago, I preached on that day, which was the fifth anniversary of my son's passing. And on the week leading up to that, and even the days following, we received many cards, people from outside of Calvary, people from Southside, people from a small group in Dallas, people from all over America just poured in their care to these hopeless parents that have experienced the deepest of all losses. But then, I remember September 20th, two weeks ago, well, I'm coming in here, and you, I'm kind of doing this kind of thing, right? And it's September 20th, it's kind of the worst day of the whole year to us. And somebody here at Calvary Bible Church, all they said was just, I know. I know what happened. I know this is your day. That person saw the opportunity, seized the opportunity to care for somebody that was struggling, that was hopeless. That is what I would encourage you to do today. That you would see people in your life that are struggling, that may feel completely hopeless, that are sitting beside the pool of Bethsaida for 38 years, hoping for a solution, hoping for a miracle, but they keep being disappointed. And I pray today, as a consequence of seeing Jesus work in John chapter 5, that we would be those people that see the opportunity, seize the opportunity to care for those in need. But let's just be real. Oftentimes, we, we sit in one of two camps, right? We're either in the camp that we see no one's need. That so many times we're so busy with our life, or so consumed with our own issues and with our own trials, that we fail to see the needs of other people. Or, we're the opposite, right? That we would walk into the pool of Bethsaida and we would see all of the multitudes that are sick and dying and lame and withered. We would see all of these people that are struggling and we would feel completely and totally overwhelmed to really help those in need. But let's not be either one of those. Let us not be the people that fail to see any needs and let us not be the people that see all the needs. Because if we try to be all things to all people, then we will be nothing to all people. We will be overwhelmed and stressed. The reason I bring up the opportunity to care is this is exactly what Jesus does today. He comes into the pool of Bethsaida and he sees a man. <laughs> a hopeless man who's been sitting there beside the pool hoping to be healed from his illness and he has been sitting there for 38 years. I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't feel comfortable answering this, this is perfectly fine, okay? But how many of you are 38 years or younger? Okay, so the man has been sitting beside that pool for longer than you've been alive. What I find amazing about this story is that Jesus walks into the pool of Bethsaida and there are masses of people everywhere, but he finds the one person to care for and to love who needs it most. So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, go to John chapter 5. To kind of quickly outline the passage, we see the occasion for Jesus' miracle in verses 1 through 5. We see the opportunity that he has to heal in verses 6 through 9, and then we see the opposition beginning to build toward Jesus in verses 9 through 17. 
But I want you to, what I want you to notice first, I want you to notice the occasion, the setting, or so to speak. What is really going on in verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 5? Notice the first three words. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, which feast, most likely it's the Passover meal. So I'm going to put a pause button on reading the scripture real quick, just to put it chronologically in a framework for you. There is a year between John chapter 2 and John chapter 5. Okay, so you're catching my drift. So in those two and a half chapters, there is a year chronologically that has gone by. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up in elevation to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos, or porches, or balconies, In these lay a multitude, notice that word multitude, of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And now there was a man who had been ill, sitting there for 38 years. Don't let that verse sneak by. 38 years. What's the occasion? What's really going on here? What's the setting here for Jesus' third miracle in the Gospel of John? If you could put it in a word, it's complete and total hopelessness. It's hopelessness that there is a man sitting there for 38 years hoping to be somehow to race into the waters when the angel has stirred the water to be healed. He's been sitting there for 38 years and now he is just laying there completely and totally hopeless. But that's good and all, right? That's, that's, that's something that happened 2,000 years ago. But allow me to put this man's plight in perspective. Okay, imagine with me, today, in modern terms, okay, imagine with me that you have been in the hospital, the ICU, for 38 years. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, some of us, if you've ever been in the hospital overnight, then you know it is a completely miserable experience. Can I get a name into that one? Amen. All the beep and boops and all the people walking in, in and out, getting poked and prodded, right? Could you imagine with me sitting in the ICU for 38 years? But it gets worse. Because as you've been sitting there in the ICU for 38 years, doctor after doctor, nurse after nurse is telling you that there is hope on the horizon. That there is a medicine that they're testing, that they're researching right now that is going to heal you from your disease. And you've been hearing the same story for 38 years. And guess what? Week after week, month after month, year after year, there is no hope. There is no solution whatsoever. Perhaps there's nothing more hopeless than an unattainable solution. This is this man. He's been sitting in the ICU, in basically the hospital of that day, with hundreds of other people laying there on porticos and balconies around this pool of Bethsaida. And he's been hoping for 38 years that somehow that he would be able to enter into the pool and be healed from his ailment. But he finds year after year, month after month, that he cannot enter that pool fast enough to be healed. 
And he's completely hopeless. 38 years of complete destitute. Yet in the midst of his hopelessness, what does he find? He sees not just a man, but he finds the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Creator of the universe, the great physician, sees him, finds him. In the midst of all of this hopelessness, he sees this man. The occasion of this man is hopelessness. But notice the opportunity, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had been there a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? I would assume that's rhetorical. The sick man answered him, well, of course, sir. I have no man to put me in the pool. I've been waiting here, hoping this would happen. I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. But I, while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man had faith. He became well, picked up his pallet, and he began to walk. The occasion for Jesus' third miracle is hopelessness. And what is the opportunity that Jesus has to care? He heals the lame man, if you're following along in your notes. But I want you to notice one little phrase. Perhaps the most important phrase in this whole passage is found in verse 6. I want you to notice it. He says this, he said, when Jesus saw... When Jesus saw him lying there. Now some of you are probably asking me, why is that so important that Jesus saw this man? I want you to think about what's really going on. That Jesus walks into this pool of Bethsaida. And what does it say? That there are five porticos and they're probably full of people. And if you notice in verse 3 and 4, where is Jesus? In the midst of seeing this one human being, this one person in need. Notice the the scene with me, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in in Hebrew Bethsaida having five porticos, and in these lay a multitude. Notice that word multitude. It means a great crowd. There was a lot of people when Jesus walked into this pool. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. What does that sound like? It sounds like an old hospital. There are hundreds, perhaps hundreds of people that are sitting there waiting to just somehow, someway make it into the pool while after the angel stirs the waters. But what I find amazing is that Jesus walks in, he sees all, I'm sure he notices all of the multitudes of blind and lame and withered and sick people, and then he sees one man. He captures one man and he sees the hopelessness of his soul and he decides to take the opportunity to help him in need. What is the opportunity? It is healing this man who is experiencing complete and total hopelessness. 38 years of failing to be healed. I find it amazing that Jesus would isolate one human being in the midst of all of the sickness and all of the death and all of the problems. Which tells me something profound. It tells me two things. Number one, practical thought number one is that if Jesus can see him in the midst of all of these problems, then Jesus sees you in the midst of all of your problems. 
Jesus sees you, that Jesus isn't so busy up in heaven that he fails to see your blind and lame and withered and depressed soul. Jesus isn't so distracted by the cares and needs of other people that he fails to see what is really going on in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. Jesus sees you. He knows the joys of your heart. He knows the ailments of your soul. He knows. He sees. Sometimes we think about Jesus, that he's just this mystical kind of spirit God up in heaven that really fails to interact with his creation, but nothing could be further from the truth. That God has sent his Holy Spirit as a believer to live inside us, and that Jesus and God does care that he intercedes on our behalf. And then if Jesus, what I find amazing, that if Jesus can see this one man in the midst of all of this sickness and all of this pain, then Jesus can see you and I in the pain and the difficulties that we walk in every day. But practical thought number two is this. In the same way also that Jesus sees him, we should see others. I imagine if... Well, I'm I'm going to confess here in a little bit, but I imagine uh, our lives at times feel like the pools of Bethsaida, that we just see all of the problems all around us. We see the sick and dying people. Perhaps we have a lot of issues in our own personal life, so that we are totally consumed with all of the trials and difficulties that we face in everyday life, that we really fail to see anything else. But in the midst of the darkness, Jesus sees just one person. I'm going to encourage you to do something else, as I already mentioned. What I'm going to kind of poke at today is this, that we not just see our own problems, that we not just see all those problems in the world, but that you would pray that you would see one person in your life that is experiencing the hopelessness in life. One person that is the lame man sitting beside the pool for 38 years. Who is somebody in your life that is experiencing Difficulty, that experiencing hopelessness. What I find amazing is that Jesus does not worry about all, but he worries about following the will of his Father and he heals this one person. Do we know if he heals other people? We do not know. But in this story, he cares for one. My first point today is this, that instead of seeing the care and the, and the pain of everyone, I'm going to encourage you, To see the need of one person. Who is somebody in your life that is experiencing hopelessness, that you can encourage, that you can strengthen, that you can care for? But then we see the occasion. We see Jesus' opportunity to heal. But then notice what happens next. No good deed goes unpunished, okay? Notice what happens. The opposition begins to develop. Verse 9. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. What's the irony here? What are they completely missing? Verse 11, but he answered them and said, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man that has given you this authority? He says, You pick up your pallet and walk. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus slipped away while the crowd was in that place. As a result of Jesus seeing the man, what is what are the two results here? Well, number one result, he heals him. But the number two, opposition arises. Verse 12. 
I find that egregious. That they would be so consumed with their rules and with the way they like it and with their little list of demands on the Sabbath that they would be so consumed for their self-righteousness that they would fail to see the movement of God. That they would fail to rejoice in the healing of another person. That they would be so heartless. I mean, could you imagine being that man? Wait a second, am I chopped liver? I've been sitting there for 38 years and you're not, what? Now you're condemning me? That's insane. They're so consumed with the list of rules and regulations, with the way they like it, that they fail to see the work of God. Don't let that slip by. Don't just brush that aside. Because in life, sometimes we are so consumed by what we want, by the list of rules and demand, by our preferences, by our trials, by our joys, by our selfishness. We're so consumed by stuff that we fail to see the work of the Savior. Let's not be like these people. Let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in the work of the Lord. Let us move past our preferences and our differences and to see and to give, and to give thanks for the Lord and how He is working in our church and in our lives and in our family. But what are they really mad about? You know, the opposition arises. It says in verse 10, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. What are they really all upset about? They are upset about their rules. We would call that legalism. They are self-righteous. They have essentially taken the commandments of the law and added on to it. We call that the Mishnah. The Mishnah is essentially the Jewish interpretation of the law. So what did the Jews do? They took the, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, essentially that command, and they added 39 commands on top of it in order to abide by that. So could you imagine every Sunday morning you wake up and you have to remember 39 different rules in order to obey the Sabbath. What would that be? be like okay let me put it in perspective okay imagine you walk into church here this morning and there is a list of rules on the wall 39 rules that you have to abide by in order to go to church here what would your experience be like at church okay okay i would have me okay to the left okay that'd be the only person that would come to church that sunday okay but the jews here have 39 different laws and the two of them are broken here that's why they're so upset. One of the rules that they have is that you cannot take something that's in private in public and something that's in public in private. So you can't take a picnic. You can't take your personal items and go outside with it. That's rule number one broken. And rule number two is in this culture, they cannot walk more than one kilometer on the Sabbath day. So it would be difficult to get some exercise. But I, I find it... Amazing that they are so consumed with their self. They're so consumed with legal, so consumed with rules and regulations that they fail to see how and where God is truly working, that they fail to rejoice in how the Lord has saved and restored this man. Legalism, at times, we probably all struggle with it. 
Legalism is essentially making up additional rules to help us feel better about abiding by the Scripture. And then we legalism is essentially forcing those rules onto other people. Can I just speak some truth into that? Legalism is exhausting. It is folly. If you, if you are legalistic, if you struggle with additional rules, for example, that you may think that I don't have enough hair or that my hair is too long, okay? If you think that way, then I probably, your, your life is probably pretty exhausting, right? And if you're a recovering legalist, if you're these crowds and you're recovered from that ailment and that disease and that self-righteousness, if you're a recovered legalist, then you probably know how exhausting it really is. That you simply cannot rejoice And how the Lord is working because you are so consumed with your self-righteous rules and regulations and laws and preferences. If we focus too much on rules, then we fail to see where God is working. But then we add one to that. If we focus too much on rules, then we fail to see and we fail to love others. If we focus too much on rules, then we fail to see the needs of other people and we fail to care for them and love them. My second point today is to see the need of one. And if we truly care, if we truly walk according to the will of God, if we truly are are listening to His voice and His leading, then guess what's right behind it? It is verse 9 through 17. Opposition is not too far behind. Why? Because where the Lord is working, so is the enemy. If I ever get discouraged, I have a friend that tells me that exact thing, that where the Lord is working, so is the enemy. And I believe that is what's going on right here. That they are so consumed with their rules and with their regulations that they fail to see that God is really working. And we as Christians, if we truly walk according to the Spirit of God, if we truly live lives that glorify Him and love Him, then we should be facing constant opposition. But then I want you to notice the final result or outcome of Jesus seeing this man in verse 6. Notice verse 14 through 17. What is the final result? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, this lame, sick, and ill man. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus. Okay, told on him. Told on him. Okay. Okay, so the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Verse 16, for this reason, notice that, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath, opposition arises. But he answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. What are the three results of Jesus seeing this man? Number one is healing him. Number two is opposition. And number three, it reveals Jesus' nature. The next, like, eight weeks ending the gospel, John chapter 5. I'm not sure how long it's going to take me to go through John chapter 5, but really this story uh, breaks the dam. It breaks the levy about the theology of Jesus. The rest of basically chapter 5 is all about who Jesus is. And anybody that says that Jesus never claimed to be God clearly did not read John chapter 5. 
Because what happens is, is that Jesus un- heals this man, opposition arises, but then Jesus uses this opportunity and opposition that comes, He uses it to reveal His nature and His character, revealing who He truly is. That Jesus is not just from God, but that He is God. Let's say that again. That Jesus is not just from God, but that He is God. What I think is fascinating about the story is that Jesus uses this miracle and he points not only the layman to the Father, but the crowds to the Father and to the opposition. He points to himself and his deity. Let me just say it practically. Seeing and caring for people points the world to the Father. Caring for people, loving people, points people to the Father, points people to Jesus. Why? Because if you check the world lately, why does loving people point people to Jesus and to God? Because if you check the world lately, what's the world like right now? It's political season. What's going on? The world is the whole world is lighting a light on fire. There is no love. When you go on Fox News or CNN or wherever you watch the internet or Yahoo or whatever, what's it all about? It's all about conflict and hating one another and backbiting one another. Guess what? That's the world that everybody lives in. So when we truly love and care for other people like Jesus, that he sees this one man in the midst of all of the sickness and all of the lameness and all of the, the blind people, when he sees this one man, it exclaims not only that Jesus is different, but also it points people to the Father. It points people to Jesus because the world is full of darkness and sin and hate. What does it say in the Scriptures? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If I could illustrate it this way, for we are just the moon, a ball of dust. And when we reflect the light of the sun, the world sees his light on us. Let me say that again. For we are just the moon, a ball of dust. And when we reflect the light of the sun, the world sees his light on us. My point today is quite simple. It is to see the need of one, expecting fully If we are walking according to the Holy Spirit and the will of God, expecting opposition, and if it doesn't come, maybe we're not really following the Lord, expecting opposition, and then we should be reflecting the nature of God, the very character of Him. Imagine with me, you are there. You come to the pool of Bethesda, and you you do like this right here, and you look all around you, and all you see is sick people. Imagine with me that you walk into the pool. What do you see? What do you feel? Do you feel the pressure of caring for everyone? Or do you not see anything? Imagine with me you're the crowd who sees this lame, sick man And who sees Jesus, imagine you are the crowd. Which one are you? Are you the man that is rejoicing in the work of God, irregardless of the rules and regulations and preferences and legalistic boundaries that they have? Or are you the crowds that you fail to see the work of God in amongst your life, and you fail to rejoice in it? My point today is to see the need of one. Just one person. See the need of one. 
expecting opposition, reflecting his nature. Let me ask you the question, and my application is this. Two questions. Question number one, who is the man in your life? I would imagine some of us live life walking around the pool of Bethsaida, seeing all of the ailments, all of the problems of all those around us, and we feel probably totally overwhelmed. But then some of us are the flip side of that same coin. Some of us have so many issues in our own personal life that we fail to see the needs and cares of other people. Which one are we? My, my hope today is this, that you would just take this week, that you would take today and tomorrow, and that you would just see one person that is like the ill man who's been sitting beside the pool for 38 years, that you would have a sense of desire to care for them in their need. You know, I, being a preacher by trade is not an easy trade for a lot of reasons. Um, I saw a Facebook post. I'm not going to mention Sorry. I was about to go on a rabbit trail, but moving on. Okay. Um, I try to avoid those mostly uh, when I preach. But this week, I mean, I'm sitting there consumed with this thought that Jesus sees the lame man in the midst of all of these other hurting people. And I'm sitting here saying to myself, this is Thursday night. I'm synthesizing and whittling it down and editing and putting it all together. And I just asked the Lord. I said, Lord, you know, when I walk into church on Sunday morning, I see all of the sick people. I see all of the porticos. I see all of the patios. I feel the pressure to care for everyone. Who is just one person you want me to see today? Who is this one person that is sitting beside the pool of a city completely and totally hopeless? I see the person's face in my mind right now. Who is the person in your life that is the layman that has completely given up on life? It's just hopeless. Maybe he's heard, she's heard the promises of healing, the promises of a future, but he just finds disappointment. Who is somebody in your life that you need to see? And then my second question is this, how can you care for them? You know, what if Jesus saw the lame man, he saw the ill man, and then he made them food? Right? That's helpful, but did he really take care of the main root issue in the person's life? Please say no. Who is somebody in your life that needs, that is experiencing hopelessness? But then the second question I have is how can you come alongside them to encourage them and to provide them hope in the midst of their hopelessness? And now I realize that it's not our complete job to make sure people feel good about their lives. I get that. But it's also our job to love and to care for people. So how can you care for them? How can you see their need and you take something and you say something and you write something that just hits their need dead on? For example, I shared at the beginning of my message this morning that two weeks ago I preached on September 20th, the fifth anniversary of my son's passing. There were two people that didn't need to give me a card, didn't need to give me a gift card. They just came up to me and basically said, I, I, I see it. I know the day that you're walking. Guess what that did? It turned my hopelessness into hopefulness. And they did nothing but just acknowledge the day and the pain that I'm living in. Who is the somebody in your life? How can you see just one person? It could be your spouse. It could be your friend. It could be your child. It could be a coworker. It could be somebody here at the church. Who is it? 
And then pray to Lord how you can meet that need. See the needs of one. Expecting opposition, reflecting the very character of God, and expect nothing in return. If you do not know Christ Jesus, very quickly, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What is our plight? That we are sinners, that we make mistakes, that we are imperfect beings, that because we are imperfect, that we cannot be in the presence of a perfect God without a payment for our imperfections. So then he sent his only son to die on the cross to be the payment for my sin, to wash away the sin that is carried on my soul. And he turns that around turns that and it gives me a gift of salvation that if I believe in him that I shall be saved. You do not earn the gospel. You do not earn salvation. You cannot earn heaven. You can't do it because you're imperfect. I share this every week. I would encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ because in him not only do you have eternal life but you have earthly life. That for the first time if you believe in him you will really understand what it's meant to live and how God has truly designed you and the purpose that God has for you in your life. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, we are so consumed with just life, just with the things going on, that we fail to see. Or we see everything. Lord, I just pray that we would not feel the shame and the pressure to heal and to save everyone. But Lord, I just pray for this morning that we would just be mindful of one person that we can show love and hopefulness to of the Savior. Lord, what a magnificent story that you, that you have provided for us in the Gospel of John to not only show your nature, that you are a equal, that you are God, but also to show your love and your care, that you don't care about man-made regulations and rules. You are here to come and to love people. Lord, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. I pray that we would abide by it, but that we would not live also by additional legalistic standards. Lord, I just pray. Um, Lord, we're all busy. I know that. We've all got a lot going on. And I know that sermons <laughs> come and go. I imagine some people probably slept through this. Hopefully not. Uh, but Lord, I just pray that we would walk away trying to find that one person to love that one person to care for. And Lord, I just pray that in that we would be selfless, and Lord, that we would reflect your very character. Lord, thank you for my friends that are in this room. I thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, perhaps the uh, greatest ministry to a preacher is faithfulness. And Lord, I thank you for that. And thank you for those that are tuning in online. We, we miss them. I miss them. I pray you would protect them. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.